Good morning, faith family. It's good to see you. I want to say hello to those in our live venue as well. For all of you, if you have a Bible, would you please find your way to the book of Ruth? Ruth chapter 1. We're continuing this morning in a series we started last week called Hope Restored. And it's just been amazing, uh, the feedback that we've already received. And we're living in a time where people are searching for hope. And um, I tell you what, this morning you have come to the right place. Uh, because God's Word gives us exactly where hope can be found, no matter what we go through in life. And so our hope is to, um, pun intended, to build that hope in you that it would be the anchor of your soul. Before we dive into Ruth 1, just a very quick but important announcement, just a reminder to our faith family uh, that our REACH initiative, which we... Um, uh, overwhelmingly supported as a faith family. We've asked you over the next three years to make a financial commitment uh, to support the REACH initiative. We've given you these commitment cards. If you could please turn them in at least by the last weekend of April, that helps us uh, just be ready to launch uh, this fall. In fact, if you can uh, bring in an initial gift to go with that, then it helps us kind of build up a little bit for all the exciting things that we have in store uh, here at our faith family. So please do that by the end of April if you can. Let's get into Ruth chapter 1. Man, like I'm so excited. I know, I know, I'm always excited. But like this is one of those passages that I fought all week long. And it just, the Lord just kept giving me insight and insight and insight. And it's amazing how a story so long ago speaks exactly to our life today. And we're going to look at that now at Ruth 1. If you're able to stand, please do so as we honor the reading of God's Word. We're doing it a little differently in the book of Ruth. So let's uh, listen now uh, to Ruth chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. 
And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful to be here. What a joy it is to be with uh, our faith family, with brothers and sisters in Christ. What, what a joy it is to be at a place where we can find hope this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, please, through your word. Holy Spirit, come and do supernatural things in us. I'm convinced that there are people here today who are searching for hope, real hope. Give that to us. In Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Please be seated. Hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things. And no good thing ever dies. That's one of the famous lines from that classic movie, Shawshank Redemption. If you have basic cable, you've seen this movie, all right? And you know that one of the themes through the movie, it's about holding on to hope when you feel like you don't have a future. The story revolves around a man by the name of Andy Dufresne. He's played by Tim Robbins, a man falsely convicted and sent to Shawshank Prison. Life at Shawshank is extremely difficult. The warden is corrupt. The guards are abusive. The other inmates will turn against you. It's a place that's depicted in the film as a place where hope goes to die. It's why Andy's best friend, Red, played by Morgan Freeman, is repeatedly trying to tell Andy to accept his fate, forget his future, and give up on hope. But Andy refuses, doesn't he? In fact, he not only refuses uh, to give up hope on himself, he keeps fighting for the hope of other prisoners. He, he does things like uh, he starts a library, giving some of the other prisoners better jobs. Uh, he helps one of the inmates get a degree while in prison. He works up a deal with the guards in exchange for a cold drink for his friends. And then there's that famous scene where Andy is willing to spend time in the hole in order to give all the prisoners at Shawshank just a moment of hope. day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared. 
higher and farther than anybody in a great place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. Hey, look who's here. Maestro. Hey. You, you couldn't play something good, huh? Hank Williams or something? They broke the door down before I could take requests. Was it worth it? <laughs> Two weeks in the hall? Easiest time I ever did. So they let you tote that record player down there, huh? in here in, in here that's the beauty of music they can't get that from you haven't you ever felt that way about music well i played the main harmonica as a younger man lost interest in it though didn't make much sense in here here's where it makes the most sense you need it so you don't forget Forget. Forget that there are places in the world that aren't made out of stone. That there's a there's something inside that they can't get to. That they, they can't touch. It's yours. What are you talking about? see, Andy knows something. He knows something that all the other prisoners have forgotten. He knows that when hope dies, you die. That when you have no hope, something in you dies. And here's what I know about every one of us here this morning. You hope in something. You hope that your team wins. You hope that she'll say yes. You hope that the marriage will last. You hope that your candidate will be elected. You hope that Summer will hurry up and get here. We hope. But what do we do when hope is gone? How do we respond when we feel like there's no future? How do we respond when all we can see is a stone wall of suffering and we feel like we've been given a life sentence of hopelessness? Do we give up? Do we go home? Or do we press forward? Faith family, that is exactly what is before us in Ruth chapter 1. Let me set the stage again as we'll enter into verse 8 in just a moment. The stage again is a woman by the name of Naomi. Her life has been devastated. She's living in a time of political and social hopelessness. The Bible tells us it's the time of the judges. There's no godly leadership no moral order. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Naomi looks at her 401k. She looks at her checkbook. She sees nothing. There is a famine in the land. No bread in the house of bread. On top of that, there is spiritual rebellion as her husband, Elimelech, loads up the RV moves the family to Moab. It is an act of disobedience because he is forsaking the promised land of God, even if he does have the best of intentions. 
And then the story turns personal. Ahimelech dies. Her sons marry Moabite women. Her daughter-in-laws are barren for ten years. And then her sons, their husbands, die. And we're left here like on the edge of the cliff with Naomi and Orpah and Ruth having no husband, no children, no grandchildren, meaning no lineage, meaning no hope. I, I cannot underestimate enough, I cannot emphasize enough that in the ancient Near East, this is the equivalent of a life sentence. There's no future. And what we do now is we listen in at verse 8 on two conversations that happen between Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but over 50% of the book of Ruth is dialogue, which is understandable because it's a group of women. (laughs) Don't act like you're offended. You know it's true. If this were a bunch of guys, it'd be four verses, right? A couple of grunts and a chest bump and it'd be over. But no, we got to talk about it. And in this conversation, as they're headed back to Bethlehem, Naomi stops and she has two dialogues with Orpah and Ruth. And in this dialogue, in the conversation, we see three responses When you feel like you have no future. When all you see is the stone wall of suffering. Here's the first. Verse 8. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as as you dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. And then she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices and wept. That's the first conversation. Conversation 2, verse 11. Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, should I bear sons? Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. When you're in a situation that seems hopeless, a situation where it feels like you have no future, one common response is to despair. What I mean by despair is that is you find every single reason why not to believe in your future. And that's what Naomi's doing here. She's giving her daughter-in-laws every reason in the book to go back to Moab. How many times in the verses that we just read does it say, go back, turn back, get out of here, give up, go home. And I'll give you at least four reasons why you should. I'm not trying to be mean. I love you. 
But you need to realize there's no future for you if you go with me. Number one is for security reasons. You're a Moabite. You're more likely to find a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah than you will acceptance in Bethlehem. You're an outsider. You will not be received. You may be injured. You may be raped. You may be abused. You need to understand there's no comfort for you in Bethlehem. Go home. And not only for security reasons, for poverty reasons. As if it weren't bad enough, you're a Moabite, you're a Moabite widow. It's going to be hard enough for me as a Jewish widow with no family to eat how much more to have to provide for you as well. In other words, I can't feed you. She is saying the equivalent of we've got no jobs, we've got no food, our pets' heads are falling off, right? We've got nothing. Don't you understand? We'll be poor as poor can be. Go home. Give up. And as if those two reasons were not enough, there's a third reason. Because of family. Naomi here says, she uses this phrase. It's very interesting uh, because it's not used that often in verse 8. Return each of you to your mother's house. In the ancient Near East, they would have said your father's house. But that phrase actually refers to something specific. The reason why she refers to mother's house is because it's the place of childbearing. In other words, what Naomi is saying is you have a whole better chance of finding a man in Moab. You come with me, you'll have no future. And then Naomi gets sarcastic, which I love, right? Which just proves it is a spiritual gift because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. You don't believe me? Verse 12. Here's what Naomi says. All right, let's talk about it. So I get married today. Ain't happening. I get pregnant tonight. Unlikely. I have twins. Yeah, whatever. Do you mean you're going to wait until they're old enough for... You to marry them, you'll be in the geriatric ward by the time they're able to marry. I love that sarcasm, right? What she's saying is, there's no family for you if you go with me. So go home. Give up. And then this may be the biggest reason of all. Um, There's a spiritual reason you don't need to go with me. The last part of verse 13 No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Let me translate that for you. Don't go with me because I'm cursed. God's hand's against me. Why would you want to hook your wagon up to a train that's going off the cliff? My life is Wiley Coyote in the Roadrunner. I'm going, woo! Right? right. That's where my life is headed. Down, 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 down. Give up. Go home for security reasons, poverty reasons, family reasons, and spiritual reasons. Your best life now is in Moab, not Bethlehem. What's she doing? Man, this is so important. 
Naomi's response to her suffering is coming up with every reason not to believe she has a future. It's not sorrow. That's appropriate. It's not grieving. That's expected. It is despair. Naomi is ready to go home and die. I found this profound as I was studying for this message. I came across Dr. William Mayer who studied a thousand POWs after the Korean War. Listen to what he writes. I don't typically read long quotes, but this is so important. Hang with me. Quote, American soldiers were detained in camps that were not considered by we're not considered cruel by conventional standards. The soldiers had adequate food, water, and shelter. They weren't subjected to physical torture. In fact, fewer cases of physical abuse were reported in North Korean POW camps than any other major military conflict in history. So why did so many American soldiers die? They discovered a new disease. The disease of hopelessness. It was not uncommon for a soldier to wander into his hut, go into the corner alone, sit down, pull a blanket over his head, refusing to participate in his survival. The soldiers called it give up itis. If they'd been hit, spat on, or slapped, they would have become angry. Anger would have given them motivation to survive. But in the absence of motivation, they simply died. Even though there was no medical justification for their deaths. Viktor Frankl writes in Man's Search for Meeting about his experience in concentration camps in World War II. Here's what he says. Tell me this isn't Naomi. The prisoner that lost faith in the future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and become the subject of mental and physical decay. Usually it began by refusing to get dressed or go out into the parade grounds. No physical blows or threats had any effect. He just lay there hardly moving. If the crisis was brought about by illness, he refused to be taken to the sick bay. And listen, he simply gave up. We could say that most men in the camps believed that the opportunities of life had passed them by. Which provided the real reason for their death. Not sickness, not illness, but giving up. When hope dies, you die. Something in you dies. And this doesn't happen not only in like situations that are severe, like concentration camps. It happens like this in everyday life. I die to the marriage. I die to the relationship because it's never going to change. I see no future. I'm dead. I die to my job, to my vocation, because I don't see any future opportunities. So I'm dead. When hope dies, it's very easy to slip into despair. That's what's happened for Naomi. 
And three things happen just quickly. When we despair, there are three things that we tend to do, and they're not good. The first is this. We tend to believe a false narrative about our life. You with me? In despair, we have a tendency to believe a narrative, a reality about our life that isn't true. Let me set it up this way. I had a conversation one time about a guy who knew a pastor and no, it wasn't me. All right, it's not one of those stories where I'm like, oh, I got a question about a friend when it's really you, you know, it's not that. We had a conversation about a pastor he knew that drove a really, really, really nice car. Now you know it's not me, all right? And the guy was like, I just have a problem with this. I really struggle with this like unbelievable expensive car this pastor's driving. It just appears so greedy. And the guy was like, I think I'm going to confront him about it. Like, I'm, I'm so bothered by it. I said, I think you should. And he did. Sometime later, we caught back up, and he updated me on how that conversation went. He said, I approached that pastor. I, I addressed the issue, and what I found out was that car was actually given to him by one of his church members. I don't know why I wanted to share this illustration. It just, I mean, it just felt like, felt like God laid something on my heart. I, I don't know. But anyways, there's no ulterior motives as far as you know. Um, he said, listen, somebody just gave me this, and the reason he found out that somebody gave him that was because he'd never had a reliable car because he'd given so much of his things away. And the guy told me, he's like, I was so humiliated because I had looked at a fact, assumed a narrative that wasn't true. What I thought was greed was actually a symbol of generosity. And I share that because do we not do that all the time in normal everyday situations? Yes. My point is we do the same thing like Naomi spiritually. That is, we look at our circumstances right here and we assume a narrative about our life that isn't true. Satan wants you to believe a lie about your life and about God. He wants you to believe God is not for you, but the Bible says God is for you. He wants you to believe that God has abandoned you, but the Bible says, Hebrews 13, He will not leave you or forsake you. The problem is people who have no hope will believe anything. And you say, where are you getting this from? How do you know that Naomi is, is believing a false narrative? Look at chapter 2, verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness, said, has not forsaken the living, us, or the dead, our family. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Back in chapter 1, you said his hand was against you. Back in chapter 1, you felt like God had forsaken you. Do you see? In chapter 1, because of her despair, she had believed a lie about her life. And so have some of you. Let the narrative of your life be based on the Word of God. 
Not what your friend tells you, not what anybody else tells you, especially not what your enemy is telling you. You base your story on God's story for you in his word. Here's a second thing that we tend to do when we respond to hopelessness but with despair quickly is we tend to abandon the people we need the most. I got to do this quickly. Naomi, if you know anything about the story, what you know is everything's going to turn on Ruth. I mean, to give you a little bit of insight on that, uh, the book is named after her. (laughs) But what is Naomi trying to do in chapter one? Even with the best intentions, isolate herself from the very person she needs the most. Because that's what despair will do. Despair will isolate you. It will cause you to want to withdraw from the people you need. You'll leave the church when the church is what you need the most. You'll turn your back on your parents when your parents are who you need the most. You will reject that godly friend when that godly friend is the one you need the most. That's what despair has a tendency to do when we think we have no future. And here's the third thing that tends to happen when we despair like Naomi is. We don't apply the truth we know. Look at verse 8 quickly. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return to your mother's house. May the Lord deal chesed kindly with you. In other words, here's what's happening. Naomi is saying, God is good, but His goodness is only for you. very hard for me to see. I know he's good, but it's really hard for me to apply that. Naomi has an A plus on her theology exam. She has an F minus on life application. Look right here, faith family. Venue right here. What good is your theology if you're not going to use it when you need it the most? Don't put on the, bless, the, 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 the waist belt of truth if you're not going to use it in the midst of suffering. How many of you are like, honey, why do I buy you a cell phone when you never answer it? Why, why would you have a fire extinguisher if you're not going to use it when there's flames? What good is it to know the truth about God if you don't apply it in the midst of suffering? But that's what happens when you're despairing. You don't apply the truth that your head is full of. And so here's the point. When you're in a prison of hopelessness, one of the ways that you can respond, and some of you maybe have, is find every reason to believe you have no future. Response to comes from Oprah. I'm just kidding. Orpah. Orpah. Oprah. Same difference, right? That was intentional, by the way. Verse 15. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. In In other words, here's what Orpah's done. Peace! I'm out of here! Maybe a little bit of tears. A little bit of indecision. But at the end of the day, hear me, the comfort of Moab was far more appealing than the suffering of Bethlehem. 
You want me to give up and go home? Sounds like a good idea to me. And she turns around and walks away. Now here's what's interesting. What's interesting is what Naomi says she has returned to. Look at the verse again. She has gone back to her people and to her gods. That's a sermon in and of itself. But here's the nutshell summary here. Listen. When you feel like you have no future, the temptation will always be to go back to what's familiar or to go back to a false god. Here's what it looks like. My life stinks. I got no future in Bethlehem, so I'll run to the bottle. I'll search for my high school sweetheart on Facebook. I'll spend hours on TV. I'll play extra rounds of golf. I'll travel a little more. Mmm, chocolate. Don't ask me how I know. I'll offer up a little prayer. I'll start attending the church that I grew up in. In other words, whether it is religious or irreligious, the easiest thing to do when you feel hopeless is run into the loving arms of an idol. I would submit to you that's the most common response that even we do in the midst of suffering. And this is what separates Orpah from Ruth, as we'll see in just a moment. Listen, suffering has a way of determining whether or not you're looking for a Savior or survival. And I say that because here's the decision that's before Orpah and Ruth. You ready? Here it is. Yahweh, with no guarantees, in Bethlehem. Or all the temporary comforts you could have with the false gods in Moab. Choose this day who you'll serve. It is what separates Orpah from Ruth. It is what separates Christian from non-Christian. It's either Jesus plus a guarantee or no guarantees. Or it's everything the world can offer you without Jesus. Do you want a husband or do you want God? That's the question before Orpah. And you say, well, how how can you say that this is Christian, non-Christian? That seems a little strong. Listen to Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Sound familiar? Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What's he saying? You come with me, ain't no guarantees. But me. To another he said, follow me. But he said, oh Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let let the dead bury the dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I'll follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said, here it is. Here is Ruth 1 in Luke 9. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. 
in the prison of hopelessness, you have a choice. You can press on with God or you can go home to idols. Who will you serve? I can promise you this. There may be a lot of things more appealing back in Moab, but you will miss the pearl of great price. You will miss God. And unfortunately, one of the responses when we're in the prison of hopelessness is simply to run to what's most comfortable. Third and final response we find in Ruth. I don't know if you sense this, but those first two are not good responses, right? Here's the right response. Here's where hope comes alive. Look at the last phrase of verse 14. But Ruth, but Ruth clung to her. Verse 16, and Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. How many of you have ever heard that read at a wedding? A few of you? The reason why sometimes this gets read at weddings is that word Ruth clung to her. It's the same word in Genesis where a man and a woman will cleave to one another. It's a picture of a covenant. So here's the question. Why would Ruth respond this way? Why would her response be so different than Orpah's? Now please don't lose me i got to get a little technical so that I can show you the glorious, the gem that is found in these verses. And it explains to us why Ruth has a different response. Now, right, the first, it, it's a Hebrew structure known as a chiasm, all right? Notice the parallels of verse 16. Don't lose me. Verse 16 says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Do you see the parallels? Say yes. Look at the other parallels, verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Do you see that? In other words, you got two parallel statements. They're like two pieces of bread on the, the sandwich. So what's the meat? What's the reasoning? It's found in the middle. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Now here's the problem with some of the English translations. Great translations, but, but here's the thing. There are no verbs in the Hebrew to which you're like, hallelujah, revival. There's no verbs in the Hebrew. What does that mean? What in the world does that mean? It means the, the literal reading in the Hebrew reads like this. Your people, my people. Your God, my God, what's happening? Feel the flow of the text. Ruth, look at your sister-in-law. She's gone back to her people and her gods. Answer, but they're not my people and they're not my God. 
I will go with you to Bethlehem. I will embrace the uncertainty. I will not give up. I will not go home. I will not turn back because I belong to God. It isn't a decision she made on the spot. It's a decision she had made before this moment. I can't go back because God's in my future. I don't know about the guarantees of Bethlehem, but I know this guarantee, God. So I will not despair. And I will not go home. Because I belong to God. Please understand that Ruth is not committed to God because of Naomi. She is committed to Naomi because she's committed to God. It is the strongest statement of faith or one of them in all the Old Testament. Right here. Oh God, God help us. She can embrace the same suffering as Naomi. And make a different choice given the same options in Orpah. Because unlike the other two, she sees God in her future. And you say, well, how does she, how does she see God? Faith. Faith is what makes hope come alive. How many of you know this verse? Some of you have it memorized. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things, how beautiful, not seen. I could leap off this stage. Are you? Naomi's like, all I see, all I see, suffering. Orpah, all I see are the glimmering comforts of Moab. Ruth, I see God, because I have eyes of faith, because I don't walk by sight, I walk by faith. I have a future. His name's God. But what if your future ends up in death? Well, then it's a good thing I'm committed till death do we part. It's the same for us as well. That faith is what makes hope come alive. Listen to 1 Peter 1. We're about done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a, love this, living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Talk about a future. (laughs) For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Faith in a risen Savior means we have a living hope. And so I ask you, 
this morning. How do you respond when you feel like you have no future? Do you despair like Naomi and come up with every reason in the book why you shouldn't believe? Do you disobey like Orpah and say, forget this, I'm going home? Or do you depend on faith like Ruth to be an assurance for you that God is your future? You know, what's interesting is that Andy Dufresne, just like Ruth, refused to give up hope. And you know what happened? He eventually busted out of prison. And he wasn't the only one. Because his friend Red, who was just like Naomi, had every reason in the book to give up on your future. Well, guess what? He found hope as well. Lord Hancock, Texas, please. I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. Hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things. And no good thing ever dies. That's because hope became a prisoner. Hope endured a sentence. Hope died a prisoner's death. Hope walked out of the grave. Hope is alive. Because Jesus is alive. And that's why we hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious truth. I pray it's like rays of sunshine shining into our soul today. Regardless of what context or situation we may be in, we do not despair. We do not disobey. Help us, O God, to depend and let faith be the assurance of things hoped for. We have that guarantee in Jesus Christ. And so I pray this morning as we respond now to your word, for those who have that hope but it's become fractured, would you rebuild and renew that hope in them? If they're here this morning and they don't have hope because they don't have Jesus, may they respond today by turning from those false gods, turning from those things that they love more than you, repenting of that sin, and putting their faith and trust in the one who is our hope. We pray it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.